I'm Ines Stetman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so I think we have a great show for you today. Um, we're going to kick it off with Ben talking about the latest in the Biden probe and whistleblower allegations. Um, then I'm going to talk about something that is encouraging, uh, the, the apparent corporate pullback on pride merchandise and pride advertising. Um, then we're going to move to 2024. Um, Emily's going to talk about the new entrance to the 24, uh, 2024 race, um, Pence and Christie. Um, then we're going to wrap it up with Josh, and he's going to talk about the the false um, sort of dichotomy between economics and wokeism or culture. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Ben for our first segment. Thanks. And, you know, the weaponization and hyper-politicization of the national security apparatus, a theme that we return to over and over again, always leads us back to a fundamental question of where is the accountability? What is going to be done about this? And finally, this week, there seems to be the culmination of at least one thread of pursuing accountability here in the way of House Oversight Committee Chairman James, James Comer's effort to begin, uh, not impeachment proceedings yet at least, but contempt proceedings against FBI Director Christopher Wray and it's regarding a convoluted but really important story. Director Ray's defiance of a subpoena to produce an FBI document, which details a report from a supposedly highly trusted and credible confidential human source and informant alleging in pretty stark detail that there was a bribery scheme involving a foreign national and then Vice President Joe Biden, where in exchange for $5 million, certain policies were pursued. That's the allegation. And apparently this informant came to the FBI with this information back in 2020. And what the Oversight Committee is seeking to get to the bottom of is not necessarily the credibility of that informant's report, although it may be credible, but what the FBI did or did not do with it. And this follows up whistleblower disclosures that were reported by Senator Chuck Grassley last year, where he detailed uh, several really startling points about how the FBI had received this derogatory information regarding criminal financial and other activity of Hunter Biden, of course, potentially implicating Joe Biden and the Biden family more broadly in the run-up to the 2020 election, and that some officials within the FBI, including those who were key players in Russiagate, were involved in essentially claiming that this derogatory information was disinformation and sitting on it and not pursuing it. So there is an assumed link here, as Chuck Grassley himself has been integral to this effort to unearth this document, which he apparently has already seen, alleging this bribery scheme. Uh, and whether or not the FBI actually went about doing anything about pursuing the information at play. So the story is significant on several levels. First is obviously the contempt proceedings being brought and how that will ultimately unfold with respect to FBI Director Ray. Then there's, was there a $5 million bribe uh, with a foreign national involving then Vice President Biden? And there has been substantial evidence to, to suggest that the Biden family, several Biden family members, did receive $5 million from a China-linked China entity 
clearly involving Biden family influence peddling. And so is that the $5 million that's at play here? We don't know yet necessarily. But beyond that, there's the broader question of the FBI itself. As we saw in Russiagate, it pursued a total double standard with respect to sitting on anything and everything potentially criminal relating to the Hillary Clinton campaign while at the same time pursuing the Trump campaign. Here, it seems in 2020 that the FBI may have sat on incriminating evidence with respect to the Biden family, while, of course, President Trump continued to be scrutinized for everything, essentially. So there's the FBI itself, which is sort of being scrutinized here. And then there's actually the substance of this document. And this follows you know, a number of other really disturbing revelations that we've seen. Uh, James Comer's Oversight Committee subpoenaed several banks and has been under undertaking this investigation into the Biden family, looked at thousands of records. And what they found, and I'll quote directly here from a report on this, an interim report in a series of reports likely to come, is that based on their subpoenas to the banks, Biden family members and business associates created a web of over 20 companies, most limited liability companies formed during Joe Biden's vice presidency. And that enabled the Bidens and their associates to receive over $10 million from foreign nationals companies during and after when he was in office. And I'll quote further, after companies sent money to business associates as companies, the report says, the Biden family received incremental payments over time to different bank accounts. These complicated financial transactions appear, transactions appear to conceal the source of the funds and reduce the conspicuousness of the total amounts made into the Biden bank accounts. That alone would be a massive story that would have wire to wire coverage week after week in normal times. But these are not normal times. There's almost an effort to desensitize us to and normalize us to the corruption at play and then the state's covering up of the corruption when it comes to protecting one of their own. Uh, millions of those dollars, apparently, by the way, seem to have come from China, Chinese sources and Romanian sources. So where was the FBI on that? Another question here. We need to know basically what what derogatory information did the FBI have on every Biden family member? Where did it come from and what did they ultimately do with it? And this seems to be one path towards getting to that broader story. At the end of the day, though, I think the question we have to ask is, you know, one, do the American people care about any or all of this? And two, where is this all going? Is this going to lead to an impeachment of those within these national security agencies and or the president himself? Uh, or is the purpose more to get to legislative remedies, slaps on the wrist for individuals involved? Or is this about making a case for impeachment and then essentially saying, American people, you have the opportunity to remove this president from office in 2024. Open to your thoughts on the merits and substance of all of these recent developments or where you think this all goes. So I, I guess my 35,000 foot altitude level observation is that a lot of this is just trying to basically rally the Republican base. I mean, we just got a debt ceiling deal that wasn't particularly impressive from a conservative perspective. Um, you know, a lot of this, I think, is kind of just theater for for those who kind of watch uh, Fox News and other kind of right leaning cable news channels all day, especially as we gear up for a 2024 election. The problem, of course, Ben, as you know better than perhaps anyone in the right of center commentariat space, is that these agencies and the FBI is perhaps the number one example of them. Are, are so far down the rabbit hole of, of covering up for regime malpractice and various other sordid affairs from the Biden administration, perhaps in particular, that, I mean, the time it has to be now. It is not tomorrow, but it is now to start to start showing something in the way of results and, and not just putting on theater, right? So 
I, I don't know what, what exactly those results look like at this point. I mean, obviously, you know, Republicans have a very narrow majority and only one House of Congress that, yes, they can use the subpoena power. Yes, they could file articles of impeachment. But the fact that they haven't even filed articles of impeachment for Mayorkas, you know, the, the DHS secretary, who really should be kind of the lowest hanging fruit of all low hanging fruit as far as House GOP impeachment proceedings or articles of impeachment go, given just the utter catastrophe that is the United States southern border since Biden took over. It, it's, it's hard to be auspicious that impeachment is in the works here either. So I don't really know is what I'm trying to say, I guess, what 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 kind of results we can expect there. But what I'm trying to say is that at least I, as an observer, I'm more interested now in results as opposed to kind of just watching the theater. Excuse me. Super quick thought on one of the questions Ben posed, which was, do the American people care? And I'm really interested in that question because the Biden corruption, um, we if, if we never learned anything else new. The level that we we know right now, the evidence is is damning and so much more blatant than Clinton corruption. And Clinton corruption corruption was bad. Um, it, it, this is not about James Biden. It's not about Hunter Biden. This is about Joe Biden, and we have enough evidence as of right now that implicates him in vast and blatant corruption. And it doesn't stick to him. I think, of course, there is a section of the American public that cares a whole lot about it. But for James Comer's efforts, which I think have been valiant to uh, message this as a Joe Biden problem, not a Hunter or Jim Biden problem, Frank Biden problem, Natalie Biden problem, but a Joe Biden problem, uh, I still don't think it's working. I don't think Republicans uh, are doing what they should be doing. And that's not um, easy because the entire media is ignoring the story and is against them and is working to discredit a story that they should be very interested in. Um, and you sometimes see reporting in the New York Times and Politico or wherever else sneak through, but uh, it's those are stories are few and far between. So it, it's not easy. But uh, I do think Republicans still have uh, can do a better job of making this specifically about Joe Biden in the way that it was always about Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Do people care? Um, and part of it, of course, is what Emily just laid out, the the um, concerns with media. But I, I think a second part of it is actually the, the cynicism um, that is widespread across the political spectrum. I think there's a bit of a, of course, they're corrupt um, sort of shrug from from a lot of people. Um, we, we've talked about this a lot on this program, the, the falling trust in every institution deservedly because those institutions are ideological and corrupt. So I don't think people are particularly surprised to find out i think there are a lot of you know th there's there's just th the group of people who think that biden is is squeaky clean are already they're like the most gullible of the the liberal base um i don't even think they're the most radical leftists i think they're just the most like sort of centrist neoliberal gullible people who believe every single thing the new york times tell them tells them i think those are the only like voters who think that biden is squeaky clean so i think that's part of the reason um that this is not the blockbuster story that it should be i think if you go back like if you went back into the 1990s and and put this exact same you know sort of uh evidence out into the media infrastructure even though the media was biased back then i think that the response in the population would be oh these are very serious charges we have to look into it and i feel like there is that detached um sort of cynicism increasingly in the american population that just assumes that their government and their institutions are corrupt um and they're often right um to, to assume that uh in terms of solutions to what josh said yeah i mean 
there's a need to radically restructure these agencies, particularly law enforcement agencies, but agencies across the board. Um, and I don't think that, for example, in our 2024 race, uh, you know, I personally will not be looking in a serious way at any candidate who can't come up with a serious plan to to do that kind of actual substantive restructuring that reasserts some kind of democratic control over these agencies because they're obviously out of out of control. We have the Durham report now detailing right um, step by step how how differently they treat various allegations or information that comes into the FBI based on, um, you know, whether or not that aligns with the, with the party in power and the party that they want to be in power. And that's that's obviously not the purpose of the FBI. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll turn to my segment here. Um, and, and this one is somewhat of a white pill, although I have some sort of caution to, to throw on that. Um, we, we've seen the now successful boycotts against Bud Light, um, against uh, Target and against the the LA Dodgers for uh, going overboard with with um, the the transgender, mostly transgender related stuff. Though I would say that the Target uh, backlash is, and the Dodgers backlash are now broadened out to sort of Pride activities. Um, we've come to recognize this month as as the month on the American liturgical calendar, where um, basically every corporation that we've ever bought you know a, a single fork from. Um, throws up rainbows all over us in our inboxes for the entire month of June. And there is still still definitely some of that going on. Um, but I don't know about the rest of you, but I've noticed that this is really, really muted compared to last year. And then some concrete evidence for that. Um, I just remember looking last year at a lot of sort of um, nationwide brands on Twitter. They all changed their logos to various like rainbow flag sort of items. Um, only about a couple companies that I've looked up. So I, I looked up McDonald's, I looked up, you know, a bunch of fast food companies, looked up a bunch of, um, you know, Walmart, um, looked up American car companies, right? Um, and, and foreign car companies. And just, it's not the same. It's not the same sort of blanket effect. There are a few, um, I just remember last year, Uber actually did not only change their logo on Twitter, they made all the cars that you would call little rainbows, right? None of that has happened um, this year. And and I think there is a real fear and, and just as additional evidence for this phenomenon that it's not just what I'm observing walking down the street on Fifth Avenue. Um, although I am observing that there, there's, there's a whole row of big box sort of stores on Fifth Avenue. And, and as far as I know, only one right now has any kind of pride display and that's H&M and it's very muted. Um, so a total change from last year, but that's anecdotal. NPR has covered this as a real thing. Why are companies more afraid uh, to support Pride this year? So the left is noticing it as well. Um, and and obviously this is this is quite encouraging, right? Because for a long time, those of us in sort of the NatCon or New Right space have just sort of given up on, um, excuse me, given up on the the market response, right? The boycott response. We we rightly, I think, sniffed at. Um, the the phrase go go woke go broke right because it really hadn't happened um, there were structural reasons why it wasn't happening um, and and it was foolish to depend on something like that okay so now we actually have uh, some evidence that consumer boycotts are starting to shift at least the outward stances of companies and I think there are two major lessons from that one positive and one uh, negative right beyond the obvious thing that you know we love to see it right. <laughs> um, but but the, I think the positive lesson is that while private companies are perhaps the most powerful in many ways of, of the sort of institutions under leftist cultural dominance, they are also the biggest scaredy cats about it. 
right? Um, they are the sort of weakest link in that regard. They are still looking at the bottom line, particularly as the economic forecast becomes, you know, less rosy. Um, they do have concerns other than the ideological. Now, we'd be dumb to think that they don't still have those ideological concerns, and they're they're implementing even if they pull back publicly. The, the places to look, to my mind, would be, you know, are they still expanding their DEI and HR departments, right? Are they providing those those six-figure patronage jobs uh, still to incoming, you know, cultural revolutionary grads from universities? Um and, and then also looking state by state and seeing what, what kind of legislation they're lobbying for and supporting, which is equally important, right? Um, but at least outwardly facing, this is perhaps a first step that that they're, they might be very powerful, but their ideological commitment is soft at the end of the day. Um, that That's a very encouraging thought. Um, the, the sort of less encouraging thought that I would, I would lead with is one of the reasons these boycotts have worked is because especially in the case of Bud Light, but also in some of these other cases, there's an easy alternative. Um, there is, actually is some market competition, whereas if you look at some of the more important sectors in, in American corporate life, like banking, for example, every company has gone woke, and therefore there's that sort of cultural monopoly effect I've talked about before, where even though um, you know they're essentially not worried about losing any of us as customers and about consumer boycotts because they can count on all of their competitors to be sort of equally woke and there to be no better option for consumers. Um, but with that, I don't know what you guys think. Do you think that this is hopeful? Do you think this is actually going to convert into structural change? Or do you think this is going to be like a bit of a flash in the pan that's enjoyable to watch, but ultimately doesn't change the structure of woke capital? I can jump in here just to actually um, give Inez credit, I think, for making the central argument here as early as a year ago, if not earlier than that. Actually, Inez, you were probably talking about this during the summer of 2020, which is no matter how much we see businesses recoil superficially, even in way, some ways that are deeper than superficial, you know, there's there's nothing superficial about stopping the sale of tuck swimsuits. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's a real sort of achievement, as ridiculous as it sounds, for sanity in the country. But no matter how much they stop the signaling. Um, this is permanently baked into the cake for at least the next couple of decades. And incentives can shift to make people more wary about being, you know, going full woke in the workplace. Uh, but it doesn't matter because this has been the curriculum that uh, you know, HR, DEI folks were steeped in. Uh, we have a generation of people uh, who have been conditioned by our public schools uh, who have filtered through the gateway of higher education and been conditioned by our public schools, by our higher education to believe that the country is irredeemably racist, that gender is a spectrum um, and, you know, all kinds of things about identity and race, et cetera. So this is not something that you can deprogram overnight. Um, I think we will see more. I think Inez is, is very right to point out that this year is different because I think we're seeing some tweaks on the signaling, the, the sort of surface level signaling. Um, but if anything, that makes this more dangerous because it masks the very substantive stuff that's happening in the boardrooms. And I, I think for that reason, you know, it's, it's a win in a sense that the companies are sort of listening and realize that there's a big swath of the public that can affect their bottom line. That's not down with this, but at the same time, it's a loss because even when they realize that there's absolutely nothing they can do because this is uh, the, the moral foundation a generation has been raised with. It is a house of sand. We know that. 
but when you don't have any concrete foundation, you are easily sort of filled. You know, when you're, when you are taught truth is relative, then this stuff is really deep because it's all you have. This is your, your morality. The way that you have self-esteem is by racking up virtue signal points and you do not deprogram that overnight. It's a, I think we're looking at decades, um, in a battle on that point. Yeah, this is a decades-long battle, no doubt about that. But I mean, I for one am definitely hardened and in a rare twist of events, genuinely white-pilled by the successful pushback thus far against Anheuser-Busch, against Target. Um, you know, we, there was a nice piece from our friend Paul DeQuina in Newsweek kind of pointing out some numbers when it comes to kind of the precipitating stock price and, and market cap plummets of Anheuser-Busch and Target and companies like that. I mean, they're literally struggling to give away free cans of Bud Light at this point. I mean, think, you know, think about this hypothetical. I mean, the four of us are all like millennials. We're all relatively young. I mean, would any of the four of us be you know, caught dead drinking a Bud Light at a social gathering? I mean, no. I mean, and, and obviously we're not necessarily representative of the broader audience, but to an extent we probably are because the numbers at this point actually really kind of do evince that. So, you know, when it comes to, you know, so-called Pride Month in, in particular, you know, look, hard to say. I mean, I still have definitely seen some displays of it, but I agree. I mean, I, I share the perception that Inez laid out that it seems like it's less ubiquitous at a bare minimum than it has been in previous years. I mean, look, fundamentally speaking, Again, you know, I think conservatives in the past have been kind of reticent or, or or reluctant, I should say, to kind of engage in these consumer boycotts. What is the problem? I mean, I mean, what is the alleged downside of using your market power as a consumer to try to kind of let your preferences be known? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. The argument fundamentally just doesn't hold up. So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a relatively rare white pill, but I definitely agree with Emily that this is a very, very long slog. Yeah, I think what this illustrates is that half the country and really more than half the country can only be punched in the face so many times before they say enough is enough. And even though I don't like to look to entertainers or athletes or other prominent people who really have no business interjecting when it comes to these political issues, when it's shoved in their faces and you do see athletes actually take a bold stand because it goes against their corporate masters and their brands and their agents and everyone else, and they do actually step up and say something, uh, that's meaningful, especially when you have someone like on the LA Dodgers of the prominence of a Clayton Kershaw, a face of a franchise, one of the greatest, you know, future Hall of Famer, obviously. That is meaningful when someone like that steps up. Conversely, we also saw a Toronto Blue Jays pitcher engage in a forced confession style uh, repenting for his sins in terms of his aversion to the Pride Month, which was pretty shameful and pathetic, I thought. But nevertheless, overall, looked at much more broadly beyond Major League Baseball. I do think this is you know, one heartening month in an otherwise uh, wretched era of hyper-politicization and weaponization. I do think DEI and ESG as brands themselves are somewhat tarnished. And I think it's in no small part because there's been substantial overreach. And you have to wonder what, what drove the overreach such that there was this counter reaction. Is it that the progressives thought they were so far ahead that they could be as brazen as they wanted and the public would be receptive to it? Were they trying to shift the Overton window on these issues? Uh, or, or is it that they just can't help themselves and they're even willing to lose short-term battles because long-term they think they're winning the overall war? I think those are questions probably worth pondering. But the overshooting is going to cost them. It costs them in elections. 
back in 2021. We'll see what happens in 2024. But certainly culturally, there has been a shift. And anecdotally, I'm sure we can all point to instances of us interacting with relatively normie people or even people on the left who say enough is enough. I don't want this in my schools. I don't want my kids being indoctrinated. People can do whatever they want in the privacy of their homes, they'll say, and they won't go to take any stronger moral position than that, certainly. But they will agree that people under 18 shouldn't be sexualized and groomed, essentially. And this is all part and parcel of that pushback that we're seeing in society. And hopefully it leads to real, concrete, ultimate counter responses that go beyond just one Pride Month. Sure. And with that, I'm going to to change the subject. We're going to kick it over to Emily to talk about the the two latest entrants into what is shaping up to be a quite uh, a lot of people on the stage for 2024. Yeah, speaking of pride, let's talk about um, Mike Pence. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, okay, so the Joni Ernst's roast and ride happened in Iowa over the last weekend, which felt really, I'm sure this was Ernst's intention, but it, it's true, it really felt like the kickoff to the presidential election cycle, the primary cycle, and as depressing as that is, there will be all kinds of fodder for NatCon conversations in the year and a half ahead because we are still that far away from the presidential election. Um, but all of the candidates, basically all of them, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, with the exception of Donald Trump, and I guess Chris Christie, um, went to the Roast and Riot out in Iowa over the weekend, talked to voters, talked to reporters, did the whole thing. And now Mike Pence is set to announce on Wednesday, which is tomorrow as we're speaking here on Tuesday. Chris Christie is set to announce his candidacy this evening. Pence is going to announce, as far as we know, he's filed the paperwork on Wednesday ahead of a CNN town hall, which I think in and of itself is telling um, because Donald Trump obviously had that very successful outing with CNN. CNN um, that CNN saw as an abject disaster, no matter how Chris Lich tried to spin it to his own staff and to Tim Alberta uh, of the Atlantic, uh, as we saw in that disastrous profile that went super viral last week. But uh, otherwise, Christie seems to be running on a grudge and wasting everybody's time and money to fulfill a personal grudge. He has this idea from what it appears that um, he can bring Don. He alone can bring Donald Trump down because he's willing to do the full fisticuff thing. He's willing to make Donald Trump the laser focus of his candidacy. Um, it takes a level of hubris for a man who reportedly fetched Trump's McDonald's for him to believe that he can successfully start undercutting Donald Trump uh, in a Republican primary with voters who rejected him when he was even more um, of an, even I should say even less of an establishment figure than he is now. Mike Pence, I think Ben Dominich had the premier take on his candidacy, which is that you, you should take Mike Pence's faith very seriously and recognize um, he is he's serious when he says he prayed about this and felt like it was the the right move. Um, you know, people may be baffled as to what chance Mike Pence thinks he has. I do believe people like Tim Scott and Mike Pence uh, recognize this is very unpredictable. You have a couple of really old candidates um, in Trump and Biden. Uh, and that could go in, in different directions that are morbid. Um, and I don't want to say what they are because they are so very morbid, but uh, needless to say, they think they can, you know, exhaust other people. They're not running for the Trump lane and sort of emerge as the one candidate that, you know, is, is uh, alive at the end of the day. 
I don't know what you guys think. I, I feel like this week feels like we're really in the swing of things. So uh, it's, it's definitely worth talking about uh, as things shape up here. So I think there's, there's basically two ways to interpret this flood of candidates besides the the quote-unquote big two, Trump and DeSantis, who have been trickling in and are continuing to trickle in. So one is, this is I think this is kind of like the mainstream take that a lot of conservative media has been putting out there, the kind of the mainstream take is that DeSantis lost so much ground over the past few months that he hasn't gotten this massive bump from his campaign announcement. He actually looks like a paper tiger on the national stage. Therefore, you know, the opportunity to be kind of the ultimate Trump challenger in a mano a mano showdown is still there. That's kind of, I think, the mainstream kind of conservative media narrative. The alternative way of looking at it is that you know, maybe that's true to some small extent, but but the actual driving reason, this alternative view would argue is that there are just massive, massive potential liabilities for Donald Trump himself, some of which Emily alluded to, but I would say primarily these you know, possibly remaining pending indictments, obviously, out of Georgia and then special counsel Jack Smith at a federal, at a federal level. You know, it, it genuinely remains to be seen um, to some extent, uh, you know, what role those pending indictments, if and when they do come, will play. And, you know, I, I, I a lot of people will say, oh, the more indictments, the more kind of Trump's hardcore base rallies around him. That's certainly what happened to Alvin Bragg. No doubt about that. That's obviously what happened. But everyone does have a point. I mean, and, you know, it, it also becomes like a genuine kind of scarcity of resources question. I mean, if you're under investigation in like two, three separate jurisdictions, at some point, it literally becomes tough to like actually run for president, to be honest with you. So I think I think those are the two ways of looking at it. When it comes down to the people announcing this particular week, I mean, Chris Christie is always entertaining, if nothing else. I mean, you know, Ben's a New Jersey native. Perhaps he has a little more lo local flair. I don't hold Chris Christie in particularly high moral esteem. Uh, the Bridgegate uh, example would be but one uh, data point among many others, but it certainly could be fun for him to be on a debate stage, if nothing else. Mike Pence just strikes me as someone who, along with Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, I mean, they're all running for they're literally going after the exact same voter, which is basically make 2004 era, you know, George W. Bush Republican Party great again. And, you know, that strikes me as a vanishingly small constituency, but I, I guess we'll see. Yeah, um, look, I mean, I guess if you are uh, DeSantis Stan, the fear is that the larger the field, the more this looks like 2015, right? Um, but aside from that, these particular two candidates, I mean, I don't see how Chris Christie is going to be, even if the, the whole plan is for him to torpedo Donald Trump, I just don't see how he's going to do it. He's got incredible negatives uh, in the Republican Party, I think some of the highest. Um, nobody, nobody seems to like him. Um, and he has to get Donald Trump on a stage with him, which is it's not at all clear that that's that's going to happen. Right. Um, which I, I have thoughts about from sort of a democracy perspective. But from a, a game theory perspective, it's hard to see why Trump should get on this, the, the debate stage when he's this far ahead. Right. Um, and and then in terms of, of Mike Pence, um, look, Mike Pence, my reputation, like the, the my view of, of Mike Pence's reputation was really formed by the fact that, you know, it, it, look, if there's one thing you would expect Mike Pence to be, you know, strong on, it would be religious liberty. Um, and he folded on that as governor of Indiana and really like getting, you know, airlifted into the Trump uh, VP slot really saved him from the wrath of conservatives in his own state. Um, 
there does seem to be this this sort of cadre of people in the race. Mike Pence accepted since he's you know obviously disqualified himself for for that slot, but are just running to be Trump's VP, which is a very like weird dynamic. Like it's weird to watch Nikki Haley go out um, ostensibly a presidential candidate herself and very clearly run interference for one of her opponents. Um, so, I mean, that, that that's a strange dynamic in itself. Like Emily, I'm extremely reluctant to sort of dive into this. And and um, I know we're going to talk about, I'll save my other remarks for um, Josh's segment at the end, because I think this, this overall, this could be a positive primary if it actually encouraged um, Republican candidates to connect with the base on issues that they cared about and push, you know, sort of push Republican um, um, candidates and the party to the right. Um, it could just as easily end up pushing the party to the left in a destructive way, which I think Josh will get into. But um, Ben, you have any thoughts before we turn to that? Yeah, I'd say briefly, uh, my analysis kind of remains, it's Trump, DeSantis, and then everyone else. And it is an odd dynamic because there's a rule, an unwritten rule, you're really not supposed to run for vice president. Um, maybe it would be more rational to say, you're running to build up a base for future cycles, increase your name ID, et cetera. And then I think there's merit to the idea of, obviously elections are incredibly volatile. And when you have a deep state that is going to interfere in your elections and is already interfering in your elections, and as Josh notes, you have potentially multiple indictments and convictions coming down. Uh, when you're playing the odds, you say, well, if one major candidate were to be somehow taken out legally, then that makes it a much more wide open field. And these are very dynamic races. And all you have to do is potentially win in one primary. And then all of a sudden, uh, your star might shine brightly and look no further than Joe Biden himself in South Carolina last time around. So uh, all of which is to say, you know, I don't I, the question that I have for kind of every candidate coming in is. What position are they actually angling for or who are they a stalking horse for? Um, and obviously, both Christie and Pence, to different extents, uh, may be used to lob torpedoes at Donald Trump. Obviously, Christie, his essential purpose in the last go around was to take out Marco Rubio. At least that's how it played out. Um, and he's a shrewd political operator and is tenacious. So uh, we'll see ultimately how all of these different candidates position themselves. But I continue to see it as basically a two-man field at this point that commands a substantial share of the Republican electorate. And then the establishment itself still either doesn't get, won't come to terms with, or just can't grapple with the fact that where the base is, is not where they are. And they need to either bridge that chasm or they will continue not to be in this top spot. So let's turn to Josh and we're going to keep talking about 2024 anyway. So Josh, you want to Kick All us right. Off so, the last yeah. Topic. So, so, so let's keep us on topic here. So on the 2024 topic and really kind of also just really coming right off of what Ben was saying at the end, how this in all likelihood remains a largely two horse race. There's been this narrative that has really kind of started to percolate. Um, I, I think a lot uh, of folks in kind of the inner circle Trump world ha have been starting to kind of, you know, align their messages, perhaps in particular which is that when it comes to the presidential primary, when it comes to 2024 in particular here, you know, the woke stuff maybe is nice. Maybe it kind of rallies some people, but it, it, it's all basically a sideshow. And that really kind of the economy is really where it's at. 
um, inflation, GDP, wages, interest rates, all, all of that stuff. And, you know, look, uh, those issues are extraordinarily important, obviously. I mean, anyone who has lived over the past few years who has seen inflation reach a 40-year high, you know, 8 9% inflation. I mean, Jimmy Carter era stagflation comes to mind. The United States formally entered a recession last year based on the universally accepted or universally accepted, at least until the Biden administration's attempt at retconning economist definition, uh, the definition of, of recession was met last year to consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. I mean, all these issues are profoundly important. I, I would obviously throw energy independence into the mix as well. One of the Trump administration's greatest achievements, in, in my view, was making America a net energy exporter. Um, and when that, when, when that came to LNG, when that came to fracking, when that came to Keystone XL, when it came to all of the above, the Biden administration has totally screwed that up. Um, you know, most recently on the global stage, we've seen the Saudis talk about cutting production with with OPEC. The, the whole thing is a total mess. Okay. Here's really what's going on here from my perspective. And um, I'm a fairly kind of public, you know, facing um, supporter of, of governor's, Governor DeSantis' presidential candidacy. So, so, you know, keep that in mind. But from my perspective, here's what is pretty clearly going on here. You're not going to out anti-woke Ron DeSantis. I, that is his brand. I mean, he has that down pat. I mean, I mean, you know, his wife, Casey, was out there in Iowa with him at Joni Ernst's event this past weekend with literally kind of the Florida where woke goes to die and blazing t-shirt with the Florida alligator on it. I mean, you know, he that is his brand. And that is his brand for a very legitimate reason, which is that he has done it. I mean, he has actually acted on that instinct and been able to kind of operationalize and put into action this anti-woke uh, inclination that many people kind of feel their civilization slipping away and every sphere of life he's done it, whether it's critical race theory, gender ideology, the new College of Florida takeover, or the corporate boardroom, that's a Stop Woke Act. Um, every issue, I mean, I mean, the transgender issue, I mean, this year, you know, the Florida, the Florida legislative session, this term, you know, the accomplishments would be too many to list off in one podcast, but, you know, but one of them, one of the many laws actually banned kind of, you know, the use of biologically inaccurate gender pronouns uh, in school. So no, no, all of the woke issues, DeSantis has that. So I think to an extent, what the Trump camp is trying to do is to basically turn the tables, but it's a little weird because Trump himself is seemingly moving somewhat left on some of these issues. I mean, you know, Trump and Trump Jr., you know, you know, back during the Bud Light, Dylan Mulvaney fight, Trump Jr. was trying to call off the attack dogs. He's been somewhat MIA on, on some of the transgender issues more recently, generally here. Here's the point. The point that I want to make here is that this is a stupid and utterly ridiculous false choice. And the fact that some people who should know better are positing this as some sort of choice that you have to choose between the economy and fighting the cultural issues, the civilizational issues, uh, two things. One is I think it evinces a, a fundamental undervaluation and underselling of the intelligence of the median Republican Party voter. So put in other words, translation, I think people making this ridiculously contorted false choice argument, assume that Republican voters are stupid, that they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Of course we can. Of course we can care about multiple issues. But furthermore, it's not even kind of this clean juxtaposition, this weird dichotomy. These issues totally fuse together and merge at this point. Economic issues are cultural issues. Cultural issues are economic issues. The whole climate change, green energy stuff, 100%. These are both economic and cultural issues. Look at DeSantis' fight against the Walt Disney Company, the rise of woke capital, ESG, pension funds. All of these are both economic and cultural issues. So to me, this is just a ridiculous 
false choice. And I've really seen this talking point pick up over the past maybe week, week and a half or so. So I kind of just wanted to do a segment just kind of, from my perspective, just kind of swatting down this absurd false choice. But I'd be curious if, if all you guys agree or see it a little differently. Yeah, I mean, I, I largely agree. I, I think the Republican base is, is generally speaking, um, ahead of most of their elected representatives or want to be elected representatives on a lot of these structural issues here. I do think there's a way to talk about some of this stuff that does appeal to essentially so um Bacho and Gersargon over with with Josh at, at Newsweek has um and had a column also in Compact about this basically saying there's a working class elite divide, you know, the working class is not that interested. And I don't think that's that's wholly wrong in the sense that I think there's a way you can talk about these issues um that that divorces them from tabletop issues. So I, I that that does ring a little bit as like sort of um, two elite sides flinging, you know, mud at each other culturally, but but I disagree with it in a more deep way, which is I I really do think the average American working class included, and and not even just on the conservative side of the spectrum, but even moderate, does increasingly feel the the boot on the neck with regard to cultural issues. People care deeply about what their kids are learning in school and how radical it is. They feel that they can't, you know say obvious things like there are men and women um in 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 their workplace without worrying about being fired these these are um sort of tabletop issues that are really important to people and and this analysis is sort of what's the matter with Kansas analysis that says oh like you know sort of the working class or or the base um, or people who are not sort of elite or whatever um only care about economic issues. They don't care about cultural issues. I think that's just wrong. I think that that has been disproven by multiple elections, including Glenn Youngkin's election. Um, and and finally, as a evidence that the base does care about these issues, right? Uh, I was really pleased to see in the polls um, this these last week or two that Christy Noem, um, once considered a rising star uh, on the right and a potential national candidate, either for VP or for president, is now pulling at 1%. Um, that collapse in her reputation happened directly when Nate Hawkman, among others, um, just to give him credit for his reporting here, uh, exposed that she had folded on a trans issue, on a women's sports issue, exactly to corporate pressure. And she never recovered from that, even though she's reversed herself and started to talk tough on some of these issues. I think people deeply understood that if you bend the knee to corporate corporate America at this point, um, you are going to basically bend the knee on all of these these cultural issues because that's what's going to be demanded of you um, in that relationship. So um, on that, so that's to return to what I said last segment real briefly about whether this is going to help, this primary is going to help or hurt the right, right? If, if, if it's Trump versus DeSantis and they're both saying like, you know, I can win because of this and here's what I'm going to do to the institutional left um, because that's, you know, like, that's what needs to be done, um, then I think that this will be a good primary, whoever wins. But what's happening instead, unfortunately, is you're seeing actually because DeSantis has been good on a lot of these structural issues that have actually changed the direction of the Republican Party in a direction that Trump himself initiated, right? Um, you're seeing because he wants to attack DeSantis now, he's attacking the agenda um, that made him different from the rest of the Republican Party to begin with. Um, and I think if that continues, even on something like amnesty, right, like um, you actually see the Trump camp hitting Ron DeSantis for being too tough on amnesty and illegal immigration, right? That that kind of primary, I think, could be incredibly destructive. If if the appeal of Trump completely collapses to his, his celebrity appeal, which 
obviously is a large part of it for a lot of people, but has not been the totality that was tied to certain directional changes within and policy even changes within the Republican Party. If those two things come completely apart and it, it the appeal of Trump collapses into just a personal appeal with no actual directional change in the Republican Party uh, because he feels the need to hit DeSantis on on all of these things um, that he himself in many cases pioneered. I think that's going to be really bad for Trump. I think it's going to be really bad for the Republican Party. Obviously, it'll be bad for Ron DeSantis, but I think it'll be bad for all of us. So just to comment on the economy, culture, dichotomy, which I think we probably all agree is a false one. I mean, it's almost a truism, but an economy flows from the culture and economies can be weaponized in service of culture war. But the fact of the matter is that the economic system flows from the nature of the people and the institutions they build and such. So these these issues are obviously inextricably intertwined. Um, and, you know, again, I, I would point back to that heartening segment we just had about the fact that Republicans and conservatives seem to recognize that now and recognize that we have to harness you know, every single power we possibly can, just as the other side does. You know, it's interesting, we didn't even get to talk really uh, during this episode about the whole what is a woman uh, controversy. But, you know, I think at the last count, I saw over 90 million, there were over 90 million views of that documentary uh, as a consequence of first an effort to suppress, it seems, uh, the airing, the streaming of that documentary on Twitter, and then the backlash, and then Elon Musk stepping in because literally one executive is the only thing standing between the entire social media universe being opposed to us, uh, and actually there being some freedom of thought and expression on social media platforms. Uh, but the fact that there were over 90 million people at least who, or over 90 million views of that, uh, I think speaks to the fact that you know, people are awake. Uh, how awake they are, and again, what the ultimate political implications, ramifications of that are, is an open question. On this primary, we're going to probably be talking about this every single week from now through, obviously, the whoever the nominee is. Um, but I can just say up front, on a personal level, I'm kind of dreading this entire primary. I think that it's going to be nasty, ugly, bloody. Uh, and look, obviously, whoever prevails, that's the person that you want to take on the left because they will be infinitely more truculent in terms of how they pursue whoever the Republican nominee is. But hopefully friends and allies and partners can set aside those differences at the end of the day and support the nominee. Uh, but up to that point, I expect it to be uh, a knockdown, drag out, bloody battle. And hopefully at the end of the day, it leads to the strongest possible platform that we can all agree on and the strongest possible candidate that we can all agree on. Uh, but I'm not looking forward to the uh, attacks that are going to be waged on people who I admire on both sides of this obviously forming divide. Um, and obviously the left is going to love to see us shred each other apart. Uh, but that said, hopefully this does lead to the strongest possible candidate at the end of the day. The problems that terrified a lot of normal people in the summer of 2020 have not gone anywhere. We talked about that in uh, well a couple of segments ago. And that means um, the normal people for whom uh, those issues sort of have have maybe taken a back seat because of inflation or because you know they're they're turned off by what the media tells them Ron DeSantis is doing which of course is not actually what Ron DeSantis is doing or what the media tells them Donald Trump is doing which of course is not uh, for the most part what Donald Trump is doing or any of the candidates you can play this game with so long as they're not never Trump um then 
that means there is a real need to make anti-wokeism appealing to normal people who would generally put inflation first, but in a cultural moment like the summer of 2020 would look around and have their heads spinning. So um, I, I think that should be, you know, th that, that should be central in this primary. I think that it's absolutely a danger when you have the media and every cultural institution saying that you're very normal anti-wokeism that is, for instance, popular in Florida. When you have the entire national media telling a national audience that it's bigoted and gross and extra constitutional a million different ways, that's a big test of the right's ability to message some of this stuff. So uh, I, I'm kind of pessimistic, um, but I, I do look forward to seeing how that plays out. Um, well, that will we'll turn to final thoughts and I'll take the, the moderator's prerogative to just kind of continue a couple of the discussions, the threads of the discussions that we've had. Um, I think this all comes down to both this 2024 discussion about wokeism versus culture and the the discussion um, in my segment about where these boycotts are going. I think it's it's they all come down to how to consolidate and actually create gains out of a backlash. Um, and you know, not to not to make people too pessimistic, but we have seen uh, kind of uprisings and backlashes against the cultural left before. Um, even on something like gay marriage, it's easy to forget that as as late as 2008 um, and 2010, right? You couldn't get gay marriage passed even in California. Uh, that's not so long ago. That was 13 years ago, right? Now we live in a different universe uh, on regard to that issue. But there was a a strong backlash. That backlash ultimately was ruled over by a combination of the courts, the administrative state, and this kind of inexorable institutional march of the cultural left. So if you're on the cultural left, you don't have to do anything. You just kind of have to hold, batten down the hatches, pull back a little bit publicly and wait for the storm to pass. So the question for the right, if, if you know, if you care about any of these issues of preserving anything resembling American, traditional American culture, the question is, how do we convert this backlash into something lasting, right, um, into something that actually has changes certain structural aspects of our system um, so that we can endure uh, what's going to be an inevitable generational changeover that Emily alluded to that I always talk about. Um, and, and to my mind, that is something like what has happened in Florida. Regardless of who ends up in, in the Oval Office, we need to be looking at how to structurally change the education system so that it's not wholly owned by the left, how to rebuild educational institutions um, that, for example, serve a pro-American and classical curriculum, how to break the link, but the, the death grip that left-wing universities have over the pipeline to wealth and power in this country, how to scare woke corporate America back into its hole where, you know, how to destroy ESG. These are the questions, how to destroy the FBI, how to actually structurally take control over the fourth branch of government that is so clearly interfering in our elections, right? How to make sure that our elections are actually um, reflective in any way of the will of a people. These, these are like really important structural changes, but they're not impossible. There, there are things that can be done about them. Um, and I, I know that we talk a lot about how like policy is not what elections are decided on. Maybe so, but the the directionality of the backlash, um, the, the sort of end point of the backlash, the life that people would like to see restored in this country depends on very much on how strategically and well this backlash is actually converted into policy and 
that that would be the warning to like when we see some of these these W's and we're really really glad to see them. Obviously, um, that should be the question: is how how do we convert them into actual real W's that last? more than six months because you can guarantee that the cultural left is is going to be around in six months and still pushing in the exact same way. Well, I'll go next because my final thought was going to be dedicated to this exact uh, question about uh, what there is to be done. Obviously, Ron DeSantis has, has been popular precisely because he's, he's tested some really good options. Um, I just wanted to bring up the new book by Patrick Deneen, which I think is excellent. Um, had him on Federalist Radio Hour yesterday. And um, it, it is, oh, so it's airing today on Tuesday. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversation in new right spaces about the the Deneen approach, the Vermeule approach, the Sorab approach um, versus, you know, the libertarian approach, et cetera, et cetera. But I just wanted to say, I think what Deneen lays out in regime change, um, just like, you know, similar to some of the, he, he prescribed the problems in uh, his, his uh, last book, and now he's ad- addressing the potential solutions. And uh, he, he talks about the, the need for a mixed constitution, how that's sort of unfulfilled by the, the House versus Senate dichotomy. And when he says mixed constitution, he means mixed classes, that you know, we, we still need an elite, but it, we need a better elite basically. And what's attractive about that solution is the inevitability of hierarchy in any society, the inevitability and the the morality of class hierarchy, um, you know, in in a system that's built for upwards mobility that is sort of inevitable. But uh, that would mean, you know, we need a a better um, upper echelon of the stratified, (laughs) of the stratification there. And so uh, some of the ways to accomplish that is is class awareness and class traders um, among elites. And uh, one of the interesting conversations we had he was he's in South Bend obviously he, he teaches at Notre Dame um what we talked about Pete Buttigieg you know what kind of mixed constitutional system would would make Pete Buttigieg better at the Department of Transportation um and I think that's a question really worth pondering um and it would take you know cl- basically him becoming a real class trader not just signaling so all that is to say um an interesting potential solution, I think, proposed by Patrick Deneen. It's a really important book. It's going to shape a lot of conversations going forward, and I recommend folks check it out. So, so uh, oh, go, go ahead. Go, go, go for ahead. Josh. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm going to take us in a totally different brief detour, um, and then Ben, maybe you can bring it closer back to home if you want to. So I thought that I would just briefly mention a new side project that I launched this past week, alongside Will Scharf, who some of my co-panelists might know, some of the audience might know, some of you may not know, but former federal prosecutor currently running for attorney general of Missouri as Republican, been, been a buddy of mine for years through kind of just Jewish right-wing FedSoc lawyer circles. Uh, you know, as, as you can imagine, the Venn diagram overlap of all those circles ends up being quite small. Anyway, um, Will and I in particular were at some point just kind of joking over text you know, we should start this group called Jews Against Soros to show people that it's BS, that every time someone criticizes Soros, he or she is called anti-Semitic. And we ended up basically just turning that kind of joking text conversation or however we first discussed it and turned it into a real thing. So, you know, feel, feel free to go ahead and check out JewsAgainstSoros.com. It's a whole website. We have some information on the website where we discuss all the various terrible things that George Soros funds from his quote unquote reform prosecutor project to his, um, you know, vehemently kind of anti-Israel pro-Palestinian propaganda to his open borders 
uh, immigration stuff to gun control. I mean, the guy has his hand in, in, in just a sheer daunting number of things. I think the number of prosecutors that George Soros has successfully gotten to office at, at this point in the United States is roughly 75 the percentage of Americans who live under Soros prosecutor jurisdictions is about 20% of the United States population, which is just incredible, actually, if you think about that. But, you know, when you think of the cities that are included there, I mean, New York, Chicago, LA, some of the biggest cities in America, it makes sense. But anyway, the real reason that Will and I started this group is what I basically just alluded to, which is every time you have someone who gets up there and criticizes George Soros, whether it was Ron DeSantis firing Andrew Warren, the Soros prosecutor in Tampa Bay last year, uh, Marco Rubio had a similar incident last year, Elon Musk most recently, just a few weeks ago, you know, inevitably all the people clutch their pearls, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt, the Anti-Defamation League posted that and they're like, oh my God, it's so anti-Semitic. This is a dog whistle. And look, I mean, uh, to, to be very clear here, I, I have a personal strong vested interest in tamping down anti-Semitism, and I have devoted large swaths of my speeches, commentary, writings, blah, 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 to doing precisely that. And to be clear, some criticism of Soros, if it gets into kind of the memes, you know, the hook nose, the puppet master, yeah, I mean, they're obviously – Obviously, it can go that direction, but the overwhelming majority of criticism of George Soros, who I feel compelled to add, doesn't even have a particularly stereotypically sounding Jewish name. I mean, it's not like his name is you know, Shlomo Rosenblatt. I mean, a lot of people who criticize Soros don't even know that he's Jewish, frankly. So uh, the overwhelming majority of the criticism of Soros is entirely legitimate, is entirely fair game. And again, Will and I just wanted to kind of get this out there to try and get a grassroots coalition of people to sign up on our website, which again is JewsAgainstSoros.com, and also just to provide cover, I think, so that some right of center politicians, prosecutors can feel free to call out the civilizational arson and utter destruction that George Soros' influence wreaks across the United States, Hungary, Israel, and really all over the world without being called anti-Semitic. And as a final thing that I will just briefly note before handing it over to you, Ben, um, it's worth noting that, you know, the current Israeli government, the Netanyahu government, despises George Soros. In fact, Amichai Shikli, who is the Netanyahu government's uh, diaspora affairs minister, publicly defended Elon Musk after he was accused of anti-Semitism recently. And, and, and uh, Amichai Shikli basically said, you know, actually, George Soros is actually really bad. <laughs> And you should criticize him. And he actually liked a lot of uh, my tweets and my tweet thread unveiling this project last week as well. So anyway, um, it's an exciting little project, just a side hustle, basically. But feel free to go ahead and check it out. Well, first, I should say, Josh, it's a great project and inspired one. And uh, you almost have to think that the uh, actual anti-Semitism, Jew hatred expressed in, like you said, you know, the iconography and such around Soros is actually aimed at discrediting actual legitimate criticism of him. So I, I almost, you almost could think of it as like false flag efforts to try and discredit the legitimate backlash that Soros and his ilk so richly deserve. Uh, on an entirely different note, I was remiss. I missed a couple points uh, in my open that are just worth pointing out for completeness of the record, but also illustrating just how sordid this twisted web that has been weaved around the, around the Bidens really is. So the first thing is that uh, James Comer himself revealed that this document showing an alleged bribery scheme is actually being used, the information within that is being used in an ongoing investigation, according to the FBI. That's kind of a bombshell, real bombshell, as opposed to the duds that we saw every single week uh, during the last presidency. Also, Congresswoman Anna Paulino Luna 
reported, she tweeted that just left meeting for House Oversight earlier this week. The FBI is afraid their informant will be killed if unmasked based on the info he has brought forward about the Biden family. So there are any number of ways that you can read that, and all of them are incredibly disturbing and awful. Uh, does this mean that the Bidens or people in their realm would potentially threaten this informant for putting this information out? Is this informant a non-American and might some other regime want him offed as a consequence of this? Uh, is the FBI saying that it couldn't take measures through redactions, et cetera, to ensure the privacy of this person? Or is it really just all a head fake and they really don't want to be forthcoming about the information they sat on? Because it would show that once again, they were protecting one of their own. Maybe it's a little bit of all of the above. All of it is incredibly disturbing and a huge story in and of itself. Um, so let me set that aside for a moment. One point, and I was going to potentially make it a segment this week, maybe we'll talk about it next week, is maybe the most important case you've probably never heard of, Missouri v. Biden, is the preeminent case in revealing the depths, the size, scope, and nature of the censorship regime, government-led censorship regime that's been imposed on us. There was a really fascinating hearing held last week where the government is trying to quash this case, obviously. This case attempts to force government agencies, about a dozen of them implicated in the case, to cease their censorship directly and by proxy activities. And in a hearing held with a federal judge who thankfully has entertained this case and allowed government officials to be deposed and seems to be seriously considering the plaintiff's side here and their allegations and the credibility of their allegations that the government has engaged in rampant First Amendment violations, there were some amazing back and forths during this hearing with Biden administration representing lawyers. So a couple of them from this tweet thread from Missouri's Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, that I think are worth repeating here. Um, so during this back and forth, the judge questioned the feds on several hypotheticals asking if the First Amendment applied. He asked if an American citizen questioning the safety or efficacy of masks or a vaccine was protected under the First Amendment. The feds' answer, quote, it could be, but often won't be. And then he says, it's worth remembering the J&J &J vaccine was limited by the CDC because of safety concerns, but the Fed censored people for expressing concerns about safety. The judge also asked Biden's lawyers if the First Amendment covered Americans' right to say that Biden is responsible for high gas prices and inflation. Their answer, it depends. The judge also asked them if the First Amendment applied to Americans' right to say the 2020 election was stolen. Their answer, it depends. This is where the executive branch is on our right to free speech. Thank God there's a case that is revealing these totalitarians for what they are. And hopefully we will get some legal remedies ultimately. And if this perhaps goes to the Supreme Court, Justice Gorsuch at least has shown that he believes he'd be sympathetic to the plaintiff's concerns. So stay tuned for more on that evolving case. And with that, that does it for us this week. On behalf of Ben, Emily, and Josh, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ina Stepman, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.